This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. From NPR Music, this is Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. And I'm Ana Maria Sayer. Let the chisme begin. Okay, Ana, you know, I'm a drummer, and you know, I'm always talking about drumming, listening to rhythms on records before the lyrics, just drums, 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 right? (laughs) I don't know if people realize how obsessed you are, Felix. Like, I need people to know that I think every morning when you wake up, (laughs) the first thing you think about is drumming, and every night when you go to bed, it's the last thing. It's like when people talk about the super romantic thing of, like, you're the first in the last, like, that's you with drums. (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty close man (laughs) which is why this week i'm pretty excited because i had a chance to talk to a musician who has carved out a place for herself and other women in the music industry that followed her who also happens to be a drummer sheila escobedo or sheila e I saw her perform with her dad when she was 16 years old at, in Davis, California, UC Davis. I was 15. I was a wannabe conga player, and I was blown away by her talent even then at 16 years old. Wait, wait, wait. Felix played with her dad. Her dad is Pete Escobedo, and he was a Latin jazz artist in his own right, played with a lot of bands in the Bay Area in the 60s, and then, and then eventually started his own band with his brother, Coke Escobedo, in the late 1970s called Azteca. And so I saw Sheila play with Azteca probably like 1975, 76, somewhere around there. She became known to me through her dad, but then even then she had an amazing skill and stood out even then. And it was easy to see in hindsight how she would create this career for herself in the music industry. Because she's done all kinds of stuff. She's I've seen her perform with jazz bands. I saw her perform with Lionel Richie once, the pop singer. She's done all this amazing behind-the-scenes stuff, like being music director for live performances, for live award shows, things like that. She's really established herself without the intentionality of, I'm a woman, and I'm going to do this. She's like, I'm a musician, and I'm going to do this. I can only imagine the extent that you nerded out with her during this conversation. And and you started in an interesting spot talking about the connective tissue of of all of the things that she is as a woman, as a drummer, as a daughter of of an artist. So, let's get into it. I know Sheila Escobedo. Initially, not as Sheila E., but as a drummer, I saw you with your dad's band Azteca way back when. I've seen you a number of different times playing different configurations and different bands. I also know you as a pioneering female percussionist. I mean, the list of people you've played over the last 40-something years is just astounding. And all the musical activities that you've done, it covers the entire length of and breadth of contemporary music. 
I know you as a recording artist, a drummer, producer, vocalist. And your mix of soul and Afro-Caribbean and funk, all the stuff that comes from that unique place we call Oakland, California, right? (laughs) Right. I know you as a woman of deep faith. I also know you as a person with a deep commitment to family. You and your family are inseparable in my mind. I can't think of you without your family around you. That's good. Right? (laughs) It's good. What do you think ties all that together? I mean, for us, I should say for my brothers and my sister, you know, growing up in an environment of music and family, you know, that is the foundation of who we are. And basically that's what's made us who we are. You know, family is so important. Pops growing up had people around the house all the time because if he wasn't practicing to LPs every day, then there were jam sessions or he would periodically have his bands come in practice in the living room. So we were constantly around people all the time. And then my mom's family was very big on being athletic. My mom's brothers, especially from any kind of sport, from track to Uh, basketball, football, ping pong, pool. They did everything, baseball. And so my mom was very athletic. So both of those things, always competing, uh, being involved in music. I mean, for us, we never had less than like 10 or 20 people. We were surrounded by it constantly. So I think, you know, family for us is very, very important. We love each other, my mom and dad. I mean, still talk to them 50 times a day. We still say... (laughs) Even if we just hung up the phone, we called back. I love you. I love you, too. I'll talk to you later. You know, it's, that's, it's so important. normal for you to to be sitting in your living room and, and maybe somebody like the percussionist Armando Parasa comes to your house, you know, when you're a kid or something. Looking back on it, I mean, do you realize what a special opportunity that was? Like, wh- why the universe placed you and your family in that spot, in that moment in time, to be able to absorb and see and experience all these things? Yeah, it's really interesting because we talk about it often, you know, God placing us where we were like I always talk about how amazing it is that we were able to grow up in Oakland in the Bay Area musically like all the different types of music that had come through has made us the artists and the musicians that we are You know, not knowing when you're growing up, the people that are coming by to say hi or hang out with my dad and my mom, you know, we didn't know who they were. 
And then later on, we realized, like, oh, my God, that was him, you know, <laughs> uh, or that was her. And I think growing up in that environment of sitting here, like, to the right of me could have been Armando or uh, Mongo or Tito Puente. I mean, they could have been right there and just being able to absorb that as a kid, like it was normal for us, you know, and how blessed are we to be able to be in that environment growing up? Like people say, well, you know, what if your dad wasn't a percussion player? I don't know what I would have been except that, you know, the other side of the coin was my mom was an athlete, so I was training to be in the Olympics. I still didn't know that I was going to be a musician, but to be surrounded, if my dad was a carpenter, would I have been a carpenter? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, being around that environment of so many great people, starting with my dad and my mom, it's a blessing. It really is. Do you think you pick something up psychically from those musicians? You know, because artists are they're in a different realm, right? We think differently. So do you think you picked some of that energy up from them? just being around? I don't know. I mean, I believe a lot of times, especially with my parents, like I grew up with their ways and how they approach life and and how they love blessing people every single day. So being around musicians that are great like that, you know, I think I picked up some things. Uh, later on in my years, touring with other people, did I notice that there were certain things I would take with me going, oh, I think that's a good idea if I did that when I get my own band or, you know, being influenced by some of the things. And then there are a lot of bad things I just thought, you know, I'll never do that or I don't want to treat people that way or, wow, they're so mean and I don't want to be in that environment, you know. So you do learn from artists. You know, you pick up things, good and bad, and what you choose to do with that makes you who you are. you wrote about in your memoir also referred to some what you call dark periods in your life where there was instances of abuse and molestation and what fascinates me about you and your careers and how you have dealt with that your journey of healing going through that it's very public mm -hmm. writing about it in the book and then sharing it and then your work with your nonprofit and the other organizations to help other victims of abuse you know what has that been like for you to be able to do that journey of healing but then also be in like under the public glare oh it's the best thing I could have ever done was to be able to share it yeah because I realized that in keeping quiet with the things that people tell you can't talk about or, or you're you know you're not allowed to so you're told by the victim not to say anything you know that makes you a person that is not able to live their fullest life because you're living in fear and you're living in guilt and shame and you feel inadequate, you feel not whole and dirty and different things like that. And all of these things are not of good. And so when my best friend Lynn told me, you know, you have to share your story because it will be part of your healing and you can't heal until you start talking about it. Did I realize 
well, I didn't want to go through the pain of, of talking about it again. And when I realized that that was something that I needed to do, once I started speaking about it, I, it was just like peeling an onion and the layers of crap that I was holding for so long started to come off of me. And it, it, it took a while, but I didn't realize like, wow, you know, talking about it is not just helping me and healing me, but it is also helping other people that have gone through these situations. Like I could walk into a room, once we start bringing this up, I could see on the faces of people who have literally been abused spiritually, mentally, or physically. I can see it on their face. I know what that looks like. And once we start talking about it, you know, telling someone, as I say to people, if you tell someone what you've been through, try to find someone that you can speak to. Because if you don't, that inside of you that you hold, those awful feelings will make you sick. It causes cancer. It causes diseases. And you'll not be able to grow and you'll stay in one place, you'll be stuck. You would live in fear. You're not gonna feel well about yourself. Um, it doesn't bring you confidence, it doesn't make you feel good. You have to talk about it to let these bad things go so that you can feel confident, you can feel loved, not be ashamed, and being able to live your fullest life, which God has created us to do. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. All your life, you were only waiting for this moment to arrive. The beginning of your journey, you write about in your book about how you were afraid of, of the dark. Mm-hmm. And you would often sleep with the lights on well into your adulthood. Mm-hmm. What was the moment that helped you understand that, okay, I need to deal with it? I didn't understand until I started when I sat down at the computer and wrote for about an hour. Didn't read anything bad, just started typing away. And then when I finally stopped, I started to read the first paragraph of what I wrote. And when I read that, I couldn't believe that I was talking about me. And it just broke me down. It just, just wow I've been holding all of this in for so long and um, that was the beginning of the healing because I started reading what I needed to get out and then I started sharing my story and realizing that this is part of my testimony and once I shared my testimony I started realizing well, wait a minute that's why I'm afraid of the dark oh wait this is why I didn't like a telephone in my bedroom or an alarm, anything like that, to wake me up because if I woke up in the middle of the night, I felt like someone was coming to get me. And so, again, those things go away, but they don't go away if you don't talk about it. How old were you when you had that realization? I was in my 30s, I think, yeah. It was late, but I just didn't want to be the person that I was anymore, which was someone who was angry for no reason because I didn't understand. Once I realized and talking about it, and I still off and on cry about it, but I cry out of joy now. And that part of just like letting go and releasing all of those awful feelings and knowing God told me that I, I, he says, I've made you whole. I, you have to forgive yourself. You didn't do anything wrong. You were only waiting for this moment to This moment to arrive 
We'll get back to Felix's conversation with Sheila E. right after this. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. It's called Protein Degradation. And if you're a bad protein in a cancer cell, you'd better get your affairs in order. Because now, thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. This approach is making a difference in multiple myeloma and other blood cancers and is how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear. It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. And we're back with Felix's conversation with Sheila Escavelo. Drumming is such a physical activity. Whether you're playing conga timbales, drum set. What role do you think that plays in you being able to reclaim your body for yourself? Yeah, people ask me that question often, actually. And I've never felt that it had anything to do with it because playing conga with my dad at 15 and realizing this was what I'm supposed to do is play percussion, did I even think like, wait a minute, this is a feeling I've never felt before. Like, I feel like I'm in heaven. I feel like this is like, what a connection to God. I'm playing stuff I don't even know that I knew. And I'm taking a solo with Azteca, my dad's band, and 3,000 people are yelling and screaming, and I had no idea where I was. I left my body. I had no idea that that was even going to happen. I never experienced that before, even in being an athlete um, and competing. I mean, I strive to, I'm going to win. I'm going to be the best. I'm going to be the best. Playing percussion, yes, but it also takes every ounce of my body to do what I do. And doing that and letting go, to me, is like I want to do this for the rest of my life because it was the first time I ever really felt connected to God in a way that I had never felt before. And it's the closest that I could feel to him knowing how much like he has given me and created me to be this because I had never felt so free in my life. The other thing about drumming, it has been and was like a very male-dominated, and still is male-dominated part of the band, right? But you have stood out, as I said earlier, as a pioneer in sitting behind the drum set, in addition to playing congas and timbales, but sitting behind the drum set and all of these other aspects, making a claim for the drum and the way you interpret it and the way finding a place for yourself in the music, you know, is that was that a conscious decision? You saw your your, your dad and your uncle, Coca Escovito, playing drums, and he was like, you know what? 
why do all the guys get to have all the fun? Why can't, you know, I mean, was that a decision that you made? or? No, not at all. There was never a gender situation or a question or a thought. My dad played. We all sat around and played and jammed. My mom plays a little percussion. And in the Bay Area, a lot of people know, you know, the Bay Area is known for going out and hanging out at the park and playing jam sessions, you know. Everyone brings their instruments, men and women, playing hand percussion, and we're out on the park or on the streets playing, and it's kind of how we grew up. So I never noticed that there weren't women playing because I kind of saw some women playing, and my mom played. She's a, a, an amazing guido player. If you have to look that up, those of you who don't know what a guido is, but she is an amazing guido player. And uh, she's playing on all of our records. Really? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, you can look. Moms gets credit for playing Guido. <laughs> but that being said, I didn't realize that there weren't a lot of young women playing percussion and drums until I left the Bay Area and started playing with other artists. And that's when things were different. Every situation that I went into, whether it be a recording studio, recording with another artist, or doing a live show, I was most of the time the only woman in the band, per se. Not unless it was maybe some singers or there were violin players or part of an orchestra, but uh, drums mostly, or especially percussion as well, I was the only one. I, I read a story, and I don't know if it was in your memoirs or an interview, that when you first went out of the road with uh, keyboardist George Duke, mm-hmm. that uh, your dad talked to him and said, basically, keep all the sharks away from her, right? Protect her. Is that, was that <laughs> Actually, a... George said that to my dad. Oh, really? Okay, George I said, I will keep all the sharks away. <laughs> he was like an uncle to me. He really was. He was amazing, yeah. That speaks to basically the dangers that were out there. Oh, absolutely. That the music business presented to women musicians. There were a lot. The offers and the things that were said to me and the things that men said were, some of them were awful and disgusting and some were all about money and what I can do for you, blah, 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 this and that. The funny thing is the early on, the f- <laughs> the first thing that was said to me when I walked into a room, a recording session, I saw that my percussion was in there already, so I wanted to, you know, make sure it was set up right and stuff. And the drummer was there, and I don't even know who it was, but he turned around and I walked in and he said, oh, hey, can you get me some coffee? <laughs> and I said, uh, well, yeah, I, I can, but I'm I'm not the receptionist. He goes, oh, okay, well, would you mind? I was like, no. So I got his coffee and I came back and He's like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm the percussionist. Who who are you? So I said, I'll get you coffee. I mean, it's fine, but, you know, I'm here to play. And that was the first time, and I was like, wow, okay. Wow. Almost from the beginning, you've had this advanced skill, right, almost like a supernatural skill. And we were growing up in California learning how to play congas and stuff. Mm -hmm. You were one of the first ones to start doing these very fast technique roles.
just the way you played stood out from from the tradition. I learned a lot from Raul Rico, and a lot of not a lot of people know that. And bless his heart, he's gone now. But there were techniques and things that I learned from him because when he was playing with all the other bands, we would go see him play. He sat really high, like Mongo and uh, the old school. Those guys, they whatever chair or log they would sit on to play, they would play. So the conga was so high, but Raúl sat really high, and the conga sat low, like almost at his waist. And I just loved the way they played. He always had a belt wrapped around him, and the his lead conga would lean out from him, so he could sit with his hands kind of slanted. And I thought that was really cool when I realized that I started doing that so I always had a belt with me and I leaned my conga out and I would play sitting really high which allowed me to play with my wrist and he was so fast and I just mimicked a lot of what he played as well and part of my technique from sitting high leaning my conga out was because of Raul Rico. And for, and for folks who don't know Raul Rico was pivotal in the early early 70s with, with bands like Malo and the Bay Area bands, but specifically played with Santana for over 30 years. Yeah. Up until the time he passed. Yeah. Tremendous drummer. Yeah, but I learned a lot from him. And that was a thing, like I said, around the Bay Area, there were so many people that were responsible for not just me, but my brothers, even my dad. I mean, there were so many great artists in the Bay Area and all of us getting a chance to jam with each other and play and and then learn from others that a lot of people would come and play the Bay Area, San Francisco, and we, we, we were sometimes able to go see them perform. So, and in all genres of music as well, you know that the man, the Bay Area is a mecca of uh, so many different types of music, and that's what's great about the Bay. What fascinates me is you and I. We both come from a Mexican background mm-hmm. on your dad's side, mm-hmm. right? And for some reason. We, we weren't called to the Mexican side, mariachi, conjunto, or anything like mm-hmm. that. It's the Afro-Caribbean music. I don't have an explanation for why I have an affinity for that at all. It just speaks to me. Mm-hmm. First time I heard somebody play a wajeo, a piano thing, it was like that scene in the Blues Brothers when the <laughs> clouds open up, he's in the church, right? <laughs> right, right. You know? Right, yeah. I, I just, it just struck me. Yeah. And I've dedicated you know, the rest of my life to learn as much on my very humble talent, skills, right, level of learning about the music, the culture, the history. Mm-hmm. What about you? Like, where do you, How do you explain being drawn to the Afro-Caribbean coming from a Mexican background? Well, my grandfather, my dad's dad, he was born in Saltillo, Mexico, and he loved hanging out. Like, he loved singing with the mariachi bands. He, he would get drunk, and we would just listen to him and sing, and he wanted to play a little guitar and stuff like that. So, you know... Grandpa was just, he was an entertainer. And we grew up listening to that, but at the same time, living in the Bay Area, my dad started playing saxophone because he said all the saxophone players got all the pretty women. (laughs) But then this young guy who was playing piano, I can't remember if it was Carlos Federico or someone, and they asked, you know, my dad to play percussion. And so my dad and my Uncle Coke, they had some percussion as well, and they started playing...
they were drawn to that type of music, whether it be Mongo Santa Maria, and Tito Puente, Charlie Rodriguez, Eddie Palmieri, you know, and all those other band, like band bands, you know. And being in the Bay Area, and those people would come to the Bay Area. My dad was just drawn to that music. And so, like I said, growing up in that environment is what I love. The foundation of who I am is Latin jazz music. That is the foundation. And then from that root, the branches that have become the different genres of music that I love, which is R&B, funk, pop, you know, gospel. But that foundation of Latin jazz makes me, again, the artist that I am, that I can play all different types of music, and it's true to who I am. That's my spirit. That's in my spirit and my soul, that all of those kinds of music is a part of me. I don't know why I wasn't drawn to the mariachis. I love mariachi music. My, I mean, my grandpa, he was amazing singing all of this music, but... You know, it's about the drumming for me, and it's not a lot of drumming in mariachi music. <laughs> I don't know. We might start a new trend. I don't. I don't know. But uh, the drumming is it, it spoke to us, you know, and it's it's a language of its own. As a result, the, the music that you've created over your career and the things that you've worked on, it's something that we talk about here on the show in terms of identity, right? It's like you represent all these cross-cultural mashups that exist. I don't know, man. It's the Bay Area. Yeah. It's, you know, it's I, something in the water. I'm, yeah. I, it is. I talk about it all the time. It's like you said, it's all of that mashup of, of a little bit of everything. I mean, that's why Carlos became Carlos. But, you know, for him to bring that, the drumming, it was so influential, that part of the music. But then he loved rock and roll, but in it, then it became its own Latin thing. And that started a whole nother movement of music, you know. It's a fascinating thing. And it's also curious to me that during that particular period of time, you and I are roughly the same age. I think you're, you're older than I am. The whole... Chicano social movement was happening in California. Mm-hmm. And it's curious to me that the music of the movement was the music of Santana and Malo and Azteca mm-hmm. and El Chicano down in Southern El California. El Chicano, Sapo, you know, yeah. And it's all Afro-Caribbean, yeah, right? And so the music drawing from what was going on in Fania and in New York on the East Coast in the 70s, like all of this stuff came out to California. That influenced me and a whole bunch of other people, a whole generation of people. They mm-hmm. were becoming aware of themselves in society, mm-hmm. right? that music wasn't Mexican music, it was Afro-Caribbean music. Mm-hmm. And I was just talking about this the other night with a friend of mine. That's a nice Ph.D. project to understand, trying to figure <laughs> out why that happened, because yeah. we were just drawn to that stuff, like, yeah. like moth to light. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have an explanation. I just know I was glad I was born in it. <laughs> <laughs> born in it, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> Let's bring it back to family, the way we started this conversation. What's going on? Yeah, um, Pops just did a new video. He shot a new video. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. But this year, 2023, he said he's going to retire. So he's doing these shows. He said this is his retirement tour. (laughs) 
And I said, I, we'll see about that. Uh, but he's doing well. My brothers are doing well. My uh, Both brothers now have new albums out. I have a new record out, but you can't get it only if you come to the shows because I'm not releasing it yet. And it's called Sheila E. and the E-Train, Hella Funky. But I'm also um, two songs away from finishing my first ever salsa record, like straight salsa. I've never done a salsa record. And it sounds incredible. I did it with Tony Sukar. Oh, man. Uh, but now we're pushing the, the Sheila E. and the E-Train record first because that's out now. So we're all working. We're all doing really well. My sister's working as well. And the biggest thing really is that we're all healthy right now, and that, that's a blessing. And we want to continue to do what we're doing is to spread love all over the world with our music and our gift and put a smile on someone's face and just for those who have not heard in a very long time that we love you we just want to say we love you because these times lately have been really hard and everyone is struggling and we can save lives by just smiling at someone and giving them a hug or just saying I love you we can save people's lives and through music we're able to do that to be able to go all over the world and say I love you that's it really exciting to me that a lot of these artists like Sheila who who have had these incredible careers over a long period of time are able to kind of return to those moments in their careers and really have open conversations about where they were mentally emotionally all of these things now because now I feel like we're talking to a lot of artists we're having these types of conversations I think the world is just more receptive our community is more receptive in this moment to talking about these things and so I think it's really beautiful that she's able to revisit and say this is what it was like for me but also look at the beauty of the music all of that contributes to who she is in addition to being an amazing drummer triple threat and congas timales and drum set all the things that attracted me to her music continues to be part of who she is in such a big way and that's going to wrap us up for this week you have been listening to Alt Latino from NPR Music our editor is Hazel Sills and the woman who keeps the trains on time is Grace Chung our audio producer for this episode is Saraya Mohammed. thank you to our interns Sofia Seidel and Pilar Galvan and to our jefe and chief Keith Jenkins VP of Music and Visuals I'm Ana Maria Sayer and I'm Felix Contreras thank you so much for listening This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me. And I'm not changing it for anyone. 
In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. 